We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, and uh, there's Bibles in the back, and grab those too. I'm going to go a little, a couple of verses over what is printed in the worship guide, just so you know, so don't be confused about that. Oh, stragglers, it's crazy. Well, one of the best motivational illustrations that I have ever heard came from a grasshopper. The best motivational um, illustration I ever heard, it came from a grasshopper. Not just a grasshopper, but his name is Hopper. And he's from the movie A Bug's Life. You guys see that movie, The Bug's Life? And... Uh, what Hopper was trying to express to his grasshopper colleagues was that ants outnumber them a hundred to one. And their reign over these ants in the movie, stealing their food um, so they could live the high life, could end at any time if the ants understand this. So what did Hopper do? He takes a nut. And he says, this is one ant. And he throws it at one of his friends and says, does that hurt? And his friend says, oh, no, that doesn't hurt. And then quickly he unplugs where all the nuts were coming from. He unplugs it and these hundreds, if not thousands of nuts come rushing on to these three grasshoppers so they get buried in nuts. And he says, that is what would happen if ants understood how they could stand up to us. We would be in serious trouble. So Hopper, a great illustration of shaking up his friends that need to be reminded of the reality that those ants understood if they were really outnumbering the grasshoppers. Well, Peter this morning is going to stir us, not just through illustration, but stir us about the second coming of Christ. And unlike Hopper, he's not going to be motivated by greed. He is motivated to stir us up by love. Peter desires to remind individuals, the church, us, about the second coming because of these three things. And I did it in R. So if you like to write things down, you can write them down. He reminds us of the second coming. One, to refute the scoffers. Two, to reassure the doubters. And three, to revive the faithful. Peter is going to stir the Christians up, stir the church up, remind them of the second coming in order to refute the scoffers, reassure the doubters, and revive the faithful. So let's read. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 in Second Peter, and see what it has to say about the second coming. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, 
Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers um, fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for, the, for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, um, a ha- waiting for and, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we talk about your judgment, we talk about your second coming. I pray that it would not be something that is so removed from us that uh, we don't think about it often. But let us come to the forefront of our minds and our thoughts so that we would live through godliness and holiness. Let the word speak to us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Well, happy Mother's Day. It's judgment time. Yay. I mean, yes, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Um, The truth is the topic might not be too far off from some of us and our moms. Uh, Yes, uh, you broke what? You know, um, I remember judgment coming on me from mom. It was sometimes I felt worse than the judgment of God to come. Uh, But uh, some people say, oh, Peter, right? You're just, this is what happens when you go through these obscure books. You're going to get topics like judgment, right? Well, um, actually, you know who the person that talks about judgment the most in the Bible Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> it's actually one of his favorite topics, um, judgment. Uh, so let's not think that uh, it's just obscure books like Second Peter that talk about judgment. Uh, but it is something that is throughout the New Testament, especially in the words uh, of Jesus. But today we're going to hear it um, from the Apostle uh, Peter. Um, again, uh, Peter is motivated by love and trying to speak to the church out of love about what is going to happen. And we saw this in chapter 1, that uh, Peter was giving the carrot, right? The, the positives of uh, being a part of the church and being a Christian, uh, that you get to benefit from godliness and love and all these things. These are the positives of being called um, to God and to Christ. And then in the second chapter of Second Peter, he gives the stick. And says, this is what happens if you follow the uh, false teachers. And he gives the consequences of following such people. And we talked about the enslavement of sin 
uh, last week. And then this week, he's going to elaborate on what the teaching is of these false teachers and uh, their doubts of what the Christians teach. And then he's going to say, why is it important for us to understand that judgment will be coming? That uh, Christ's parousia, his second arrival, his coming to judge the earth, uh, is something that we need to put into the forefront of our minds. I really like the first three verses here. You can look with me. Um, Again, the idea of stirring up. The idea that people should remember that there should be a mental exercise of understanding these things like Christ's second coming. It's not a passive thing. It's in fact, we should be thinking about it. We should not just uh, step back and say, oh, I don't need to think about uh, my belief that Christ will come again and judge um, the living and dead, that he will destroy the earth and make a new heavens and earth. That that should be something I just go, okay, yeah, um, you know, some people believe that. I really don't need to think about it very much. This is really, um, that might be someone else's faith that's not my own. You know, when I get pressed on these issues, I don't really need to be able to give answers to them. But Peter's saying you need to be able to think through these issues so that when scoffers come or when you are pressed in your faith, that you are able to grow through understanding this. I will make the argument in this church, and you'll probably hear me say it over and over again, that we are all theologians. All of us. I am not just a theologian. We are all theologians. And that means that uh, an understanding of who God is and what God has done informs us in how we live our lives. Whether you like it or not, you have an opinion of who God is and what God has done, and you live out your life based on those premises. So you are a theologian, whether you like it or not. For example, let's say uh, I said that everyone that owns a Chevrolet, uh, when God comes back, he will judge you and uh, send you into eternal punishment. Right? What if I said that? If you uh, said, oh, if that's true, then uh, if you own a Chevrolet, like maybe I should get rid of my Chevrolet. Right? But most of you say, that's just... That's crazy talk, Dan. That's not the way God operates. I'm going to continue to have my Chevy Malibu and drive it, dang it. You know, God doesn't judge on that way. But if I said that God will come and judge the living and the dead, he will come and judge you on your life. And he will send those that do not believe and repent in him. How would that then make you live? If you believe that, what would be your actions? And here is what the scoffers believe. You'll see it here in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? You can see them literally scoffing at them. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, the patriarchs, maybe the early people in faith, or maybe some of the apostles, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The world is going to keep on spinning. It's going to keep on going. There is no outside force working upon the world. There is no force coming in to judge us or to say this is the way we're supposed to live. It's just going to keep going. 
And because they believe such things, we saw in chapter 2, they live in such a way of that reality. If there is no outside force that's going to work upon us, if there's no judge that's going to judge us the way that we live, therefore, I'm going to live the way I want to. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to sleep with who I want to. I'm going to spend money the way I want to. I'm going to do what pleases me because there is no outside force working upon me. But Peter responds to them. And he says in verse 5, You deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. Here, Peter is saying there is an actor upon this world. There is a God that has entered into this place. He is because he created this world. He made it. And thing is, he continues to act in it. And he gives one illustration. Don't you remember the flood? And many people in many different cultures, not just um, uh, uh, Israelites, believe that there was a great flood. Here is a living example of God interacting with the world and judging people. Now, you know, we all saw the movie Noah, uh, right? Oh, maybe some of you didn't, maybe not. But you can see even our culture today says, okay, maybe this actually did happen. And uh, some people like the idea of Noah saying, oh, God judges people that are environmentalists, which I heard that was kind of maybe the major theme of uh, the movie. But uh, the idea that there is judgment. But on top of that, God has also entered the world through Jesus. He has showed us the way the kingdom is supposed to be. He came in and said, the kingdom of God, how the new heavens and new earth should look, is the way that I am acting now by healing, by casting out demons, by all of his actions dying to sin. That is the way the kingdom will be. And when Jesus comes, it starts the last chapter of this earth. Because when Jesus comes again, he will make all the things that are happening right now in this world that are not the way the kingdom that he wants to establish, disappear. And Peter uses the analogy of burning up in fire. So when Jesus comes again and acts, he will right away, boom, judge this earth and burn away all the things that are not supposed to be and then create the world the way it is supposed to be. And we are in that last chapter the last times, the imminence of Christ's return. Oh, yes. Happy Mother's Day, right? Yep. Uh, I just talked about judgment and Jesus coming back again and judging and the destruction of the ungodly and all those things. And uh, there are scoffers still today. I love this passage because um, it's not very far away from what we hear today, is it? We hear about those that also say the world's going to keep on spinning. There is no outside mover. There will be no judgment. When has God ever acted? Scoffing still happens today. I'm an NPR fan. I hope you'll forgive me for being an NPR fan, but I like to listen to NPR. And uh, Sam Harris is a constant contributor uh, to NPR. Uh, Sam Harris is... Um, 
kind of a philosopher and thinker of our age. Um, he's written a very popular book, a New York Times bestseller called Letters to a Christian Nation. And Sam Harris scoffs at us, <laughs> at us Christians. And he's one of the more vocal scoffers, um, and he gets a lot of press about it. Uh, but I would hope that we would realize this is, um, if we believe such a thing as God's judgment, uh, some people have a problem with that idea, and they will say such things like this against us. And here's what Sam says in his book, Letters to a Christian Nation. 44% of the American population is convinced that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead sometime in the next 50 years. According to the most common interpretation of biblical prophecy, Jesus will return only after things have gone horribly awry here on earth. It is therefore not an exaggeration to say that if the city of New York were suddenly replaced by a ball of fire, some significant percentage of the American population would see a silver lining in the subsequent mushroom cloud. As it would suggest to them that the best thing that is ever going to happen was about to happen, the return of Christ. It should be blindingly obvious that beliefs of this sort will do little to help us create a durable future for ourselves, socially, economically, environmentally, or geopolitically. Imagine the consequences. Okay, hear this, please. Imagine the consequences if any significant component of the U.S. government actually believed that the world was about to end and that its ending would be glorious. The fact that nearly half of the American population apparently believes this purely on the basis of religious dogma, should be considered a moral and intellectual emergency. Okay. Sam Harris goes on in Letters to Christian Nation. And maybe, I mean, I, I hope, maybe some of you have those thoughts too about judgment. I don't want to just bash Sam Harris. I want to interact with his thoughts here. Um, and Sam Harris goes on in his Letters to Christian Nation, that, you know, Christianity is the result of so much suffering and pain and death throughout history, it's time to start moving past um, faith and religion and finally to go to reason and to enlightenment. Uh, and we need to start programming people or educating people um, in the right way away from this kind of thinking so that we can create uh, a right society. Um, if I was with Sam Harris and we were having a, a nice, hopefully a cordial conversation um, what I would say to him is this. I'd say, Sam, I seem to think that you have totally overlooked all of the 20th century. <laughs> because I don't know if you know this, but the 20th century was the war of ideologies, wasn't it? And there were people that thought, if maybe we get rid of religion, we get rid of that thinking, we can create a right society. Do you know, there were people that said that. It was called uh, Communist Russia. <laughs> And uh, how did they do in their experiments? Not good. The figures are anywhere from 10 million to 30 million people were killed um, in atheistic Russia in the 20th century. So your idea, Sam, that once we get rid of religion, that will be okay, seems to be false. And if we just program people the way we want them to, they'll be fine. It's also false. And I will make the argument to you, Sam, this. You also believe in a, a judgment. But your judgment is a present judgment. If people don't believe or think the way that you want them to believe or think, then they need to be judged and acted upon. 
I don't believe in a present judgment. I believe in a future judgment, which I think is better for how we should live in society today. Because I say, even if people think wrong or live wrong, I can't correct it now, but there will be one that will correct it later. So it won't be my power or my persuasion or my force that will make this society correct. It will be an outside force and a God that will make it correct. And you actually want to make your power be the one that makes society correct. I'm more worried about you than I'm worried about me. Is that forceful enough? If you don't like philosophical arguments, um, how about you that love the Hunger Games, right? Hunger Games books, right? Divergent, right? Um, right? Dystopian novels. How did they do in creating a perfect society? Not very good, did they? Why? I think it's because it shows sin comes from within, not from without. And the only correction to that is from a God, not from some utopian place or outside forces like government or whatnot. Okay? That's my argument. Okay? That's the, that's the end of philosophy for today. Okay? We'll take that. Okay? Sure. Great. Refuting the scoffers. But how about me? You know? How about me? Sure, that might be the case, but why doesn't God do it now? Why doesn't He save us now? Why doesn't He make the world perfect now? I want Him to do something. Why doesn't He come? And here... He reassures the doubters, especially the people in this church that are suffering, that have people persecuting them. And especially when they've heard from Jesus and they've heard from the apostles, God's return is imminent. But here 30, 40, 50 years have passed and he hasn't come. What's going on? You said you would come and you haven't come yet. You said this was the end of the age, but still we wait and people are laughing at us. I think it's important to see that when Jesus is talking about the end of the age and the apostles are talking about the end of the age, they are talking about the last chapter of civilization. That Christ has come to show how the kingdom should be. And then when he comes again, it's over. It's done. He's going to set it all right. We are in that last chapter. And even Jesus, in Mark 13, it says this, Jesus did not even know the hour where the Father would have him return. I don't know how that makes sense, but that's what the Scripture says, that Jesus didn't even know. And if Jesus doesn't know, then we don't even know. And here, in verse 8, it says, the perception of, t- perception of time for God is much different than our perception of time. And uh, I think about that as I grow older. I remember when I was young, a year felt like an eternity. It seems like years go faster and faster and faster, right? Because uh, the amount of time in our life has increased. So it takes a less percentage, you know. Uh, You know, when you're turning six to seven, that's a huge chunk of your existence. When you're going from 80 to 81, that becomes a little bit less. And how much more would time be different to God who lives in the spans of eternity? And here it gives the example, a thousand years 
is as a day. Please don't hear a thousand years equals a day. It's as a day, okay? It's an allegory. So when we say God's coming back in year 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000, it's, it's an allegory. It's not literal, okay? Just it's like, A day is like a thousand years uh, to the Lord. So, one, perception is different in time. And so that's why it's reassuring to know that God is taking time. And it, you know why it's good news that he takes time? Look at this in verse 9. The Lord is now slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. God is taking time so people will come to know him. That he wants people to enter into his kingdom. Uh, I want to go through the theological issue right here of how can God desire all to be saved? And then also then in verse 7 he says, I will destroy the ungodly. So how can he want all to be saved but at the same time condemn some? I come under the philosophy that there are two wills of God, his decretive will and his desired will. And his desired will is that all would be saved. But his decretive will, what he has ordained, is that only some will be saved. Okay? Sure, label me a Calvinist, go right ahead, I'll take it. If you have questions about that, and maybe we want to discuss that further, I've actually put two, some articles out there. It's a really good article on the two wills of God. And if you have uh, some theological problems with that, I encourage you to read that. I would love to sit down and talk with you about it, too. That's a very good article. That said, I do believe that the nature of God is compassionate, slow to anger, patient with us. And he shows that throughout the Old Testament here in the New Testament, wanting those to come to repentance. And the way that God judges here, as is shown in this passage, I think is revolutionary. You see what God says and what he doesn't say. He says this. He says in verse 9, Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach a point where they finally do the right thing. They should all reach a point where they finally take out the trash when they're supposed to. They should finally reach a point where they uh, will um, give to the poor. They finally reach a point where um, they are morally righteous and upright. No, it doesn't say that, does it? They will finally reach a point of repentance. Of repentance. God judges not on our goodness, but on our coming to Him and confessing to Him. That is a revolutionary principle. And it is a measure that is good. I think about it in this way. Many people that we know, or maybe ourselves, have grown up in places that have been difficult and hard with parents that have been difficult and hard. And we weren't taught, you know, this is the way you're supposed to live, this is goodness, all those things. And on the trajectory of being a morally astute person, we're lacking. And God doesn't say, well, I judge people on where they are on that ranking. No, he doesn't judge on that. He judges on whether you say, God, I need you or not. So no matter where you are on that scale of goodness or badness, you know, I remember the, in high school who was ranking in the top 10% of the class. You know, the top 10% isn't in. No. 
In fact, it is those that are repentant that are in. And that should be a little bit of worry for those that think that their goodness is what will get them there. It was clearly illustrated to me in this. We helped move a Congolese family that came in this this week. And um, Appleton is very, the, the philanthropic community, they're benevolent, they give away lots of things. I walk into this room and this is all, it's like, it's a large room, and it's filled with couches and silverware and dishes and uh, tables, tons and tons of stuff. And this is all for the refugees that are coming into um, Appleton. Wow, what a good community that they would love these people. And then I go to meet these people that have moved from the Congo. They have nothing, right? There is nothing there. And they know little English. And we're talking, and they're just joyful. And they're just, just, it's so good. What is the judgment upon them? Is it that they would finally arrive to American materialism? <laughs> that they would finally collect enough stuff like all of us have, that they would finally have the right job, they would finally be as good and moral as us. Is that what we're selling them? That is a false gospel. Do you know what the good news for them is? That I'm not saved by my wealth. I'm not saved by my education. I'm not saved by my title but I'm saved by Christ alone. And I am equal with them on that. That is good news. But that's also bad news for those that think they can get away with giving away stuff by being good, by being benevolent. That won't get you there. Repentance will. Well, uh, uh, go on here. Um, How should that then make us live? Verse 11 says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning God will come and burn away all that is not part of his kingdom, and he will establish a new heavens and new earth, what sort of people ought you to be? To live lives of holiness and godliness. I again will illustrate that imperatives follow indicatives. How we are supposed to live, the commands, you're supposed to be holy and godly, those are imperatives, follow the reality. God is compassionate, lovely, he is patient, and he forgives us. The result of his compassion for us and our repentance is then us abiding by these things. Okay? Imperatives follow the indicatives. Well, knowing that this is going to happen, how should we live? Knowing that Christ is going to come back, He is imminent, what should we do? Well, maybe we should be like those in history, right? In 1000 AD, uh, people thought Christ was going to come back, so they all waited outside. He didn't come back. In the 19th century, the Jehovah's Witness, um, on multiple occasions, and it even came to the 20th century, said God was going to come back. He didn't happen. 
1988, um, there were 88 reasons that Christ will come back in 1988. There was a group that didn't happen. Harold Camping, just in 2011, built lots of billboards and said Christ is come, coming back. It did not happen. <laughs> I love Rico Tice. He's a pastor in England. There was a group in Australia in the, in the early 90s, and they said Christ is going to come back in the summer at like 2 a.m. in the morning. And Australia, with its uh, very loose culture, people were partying outside their church um, at 2 a.m. Uh, and uh, it was 2.30, and the churchgoers start leaving the church. This guy comes around, the dude puts his arm around one of the church members and say, Dude, it's okay, man. The world's not going to end. So, get it? Okay, sorry. Um, that's what his, uh, his... We might laugh at that, but the truth is, Christ will come back. It is going to happen. And because of that, we should be mindful. When I go down to the basement, I forget a lot what I'm going down there to get. It's a common occurrence. And then I go back upstairs and I'm like, Aaron, what was I supposed to go down and get? But recently we've had a mouse in the basement. Uh, so it is. Uh, it has then spurred my mind into knowing what I'm supposed to get down there because I better hurry up and get it so I don't get, you know, the mouse doesn't um, pop out, right? I've got to get it quick before the mouse comes. In the same way, knowing that Christ is going to come back should make us think, why am I doing what I am doing today? What is the purpose of my actions? Does it please God? When we put his judgment and his imminence that he will come down and all the things of this earth that are not of his kingdom will burn away, it should give us perspective. Some examples? Am I just passing the time at work? It is, just, is it just paying the bills until I get out? Or am I glorifying God in it? Am I honoring the gifts that God has given me? Am I loving my co-workers, praying for their lives, and doing my work for God's glory? Are the times with my kids just to get me to when they go to bed? Or am I giving them hope and joy today? Am I loving them? Do I know that judgment is to come? And when God comes back, what will he see me doing with my children? Am I praying for my husband or wife? Or am I living like we are just roommates? In Christ's Eminence is coming back. What would he see? Am I just passing the time of day? Am I just killing time with television and internet? Or am I pursuing God and what he would have me to do? What are the things that are eternal? What are the things that are passing away? What are you spending your time on? Eternity? Or things that will only burn. Refute the scoffers. Revive the faithful. And also to reassure 
those that are doubting. That is the purpose of talking about the second coming. There is a story this week that culminates all those three ideas. Emily Letts, 24 years old, Emily Letts. And she invited all of you, all of us, the whole world, into her story this week. All of us can see it. She posted it on YouTube. And she wanted us to know about her story. And as she said, the positive nature of her story. And so far, a million people have viewed her story. Well, Emily Letts, this 24-year-old story is this. She let the world see her abortion, the termination of her pregnancy online. And say, it's okay, it's safe, it's no problem. Well, Garrett Crawl watched her video, and he thought, Emily, I heard your story, I want you to hear my story. So Garrett wrote this to Emily. Dear Emily, we have never met, but my wife and I just watched your abortion story video. You invited us and the world into your story, so I thought I would invite you into mine. While we might not have a lot in common, I know we have at least a few things, and they have to do with abortion. When I was 19, I got a friend pregnant. I, too, wasn't ready for a baby. I had hopes and dreams ahead of me, and having a child seemed like the end of all those dreams. So we aborted our child. Now I am a man, so in some very significant ways, my abortion experience was different than yours, but in many other ways, it was the same. You see, when our procedure was over, I too felt relief. I felt free to begin life again and make smarter choices. I could get a fresh start, and in many ways, I did. But what haunted me in the months and years afterwards was a reality similar to what you expressed in your video. I feel in awe, in quotes is what she said, I feel in awe that I can make a baby, that I can make a life. That is what I couldn't escape. I had been part of creating a life, and then I had been part of ending that life. I tried to ignore it, but there were no, was nowhere to hide. My telltale heart beat louder and louder. I had loved my life so much that I had been willing to kill my own child to protect my happiness. Emily, my child would be 17 today. We've been planning road trips, to colleges, we'd be looking forward to our last family vacation before they left home. I'd be giving my final parental pep talk about working hard and looking for the right kind of spouse. But none of that is happening. The fact is that I cannot undo what I've done in the past. None of us can. What's done is done. The only hope we have is found in the sinless Son of God, who came to rescue people who have lost their way. He entered into our broken world and our broken lives to rescue us from our sins, including the sin of taking the life of the children he gave to us. That's why he died on the cross of Calvary, to take the judgment sinners like us deserve. Emily, someday the YouTube hits will stop. Your supporters will put away their pom-poms, and your opponents will put away their pitchforks. And my prayer for you is that when you can't escape the haunting reality of what you've done, you will turn to Jesus. 
Emily, Jesus will heal your wounds if you cry out to them. There is no sin so great that he cannot forgive and no sin so small that he does not need to be forgiven. If you will confess what you have done and turn to him in faith, he will wash away all your guilt and all your shame. There is a place to go to be made new. I hope you will come and ask Jesus to turn your story into one where life is given. That's what happened in my abortion story. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Sincerely, Garrett Kell. Why is the second coming reiterated? To refute the scoffers. If all you heard me say in this last story was some political message, I haven't made any political stance. Okay? I haven't said anything political. If you want to know my politics on it, you can talk to me afterwards. If you have an issue with what I've said about abortion, I encourage you, you can talk to me afterwards about it. But what I can say from the pulpit, and what I will say theologically is this. I believe Emily speaks a message that many people speak in our culture. That it's my story. I can do what I want. There is no judge. The world will keep on spinning. I can do what I like, and there is no consequences or eternal punishment for it. She is dead wrong. Many people on this earth are dead wrong. There will be a judgment. God will come, and he will judge us. Next, to reassure the doubters. If all you heard in that story was, wow, what a freak. I can't believe that woman, Emily. Man, there's going to be a special place for her. You've also missed the message. What Garrett offers is hope. A God that comes to sinners, to those in their need, that no matter what choices they've made, he will restore them. And lastly, he will revive the faithful. If all you heard in this last story was this, I'm glad that's not me. You've also missed the point. Each of us will face judgment. Are you confessing to God the ways that you are living for things that will just perish instead of living for things that are eternal? Is Garrett's letter as much for you as it is for Emily that you are repenting for living things for things that will just burn away? The gospel is for all of us. And the message of Jesus should ring into our ears. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that you will come and make all things new. That you will judge the living and the dead. That the things of this world, this world that are not right will be burned away. And the things that are supposed to be be part of this new heaven and new earth. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and continue in worship.